Lord, for what you're doing this morning. Thank you for the thread that we already see running through the prayers and the worship. And I pray that you would yeah, just continue to have your way. Anoint my, my words. Anoint these ears and these hearts to hear what you have to say, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is great. The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the sea and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared my oath in my anger. They shall not enter my rest. We've been sharing the last couple of weeks on how to enter in and how to, to grow up. Maybe a challenging message. How to, like when we're playing poker and you actually go like all in with our chips. How to surrender everything that we've got. But the question is, how do we surrender when we're in the midst of a storm? How do we surrender when we feel like a jellyfish without a spine? How do we surrender when there's a storm raging around us? And that, that poetic nature of like talking about the challenges of life being a storm is all throughout scripture and it's all throughout poetry. It's all throughout our fiction. If you think it's like Shakespeare had one of his most famous plays is The Tempest and it's talking about a storm and the, the consequences of a storm and what that brings into our life and I was listening this morning and one of the songs I was just playing earlier on and he, listening to the lyrics, says, oh, when the winds they blow, you're going to need somebody to know you. You're going to need somebody's love to fall into. When the leaves they fall, you're going to need somebody to call you. You're going to need somebody's arms to crawl into. To crawl into, go and get yourself lost like you always do. Sail into the blue with nobody next to you. Oh, but when you want to get yourself found, there may be no one around. You sink without a sound, you know it's true. Oh, when the winds they blow, you're going to need somebody to know you. You're going to need somebody's love to fall into. In Psalm 1, it talks about like when the winds and the storms of life come and it blows the chaff away. When Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, he says, and when the rains come and the winds blow, the life that you've built is either going to stand or it's going to be washed away. It's going to be a life built upon the rock or built upon the sand. So there's this whole challenge all through scripture, all through history, because we know there's a life that we call to live. And the question is, how do we build a life that actually sustains us? And how do we build a life where we actually all in? I said, one of the things we, we call to is we call to grow up into the fullness of Christ. But then what does that look like in our lives? I'm going to go to the, the rich theological um, I don't know, story of Toy Story. <laughs> yeah. Turn to the book of Toy Story, please, in your Bible. But 
that whole movie is a wrestle with calling. Because Woody is replaced by Buzz. And he's trying to figure out, like, what do I do? And how, to, how do I get back to my place? And there's an element of actually the stages and seasons in our life. What do you do when you're transitioning from being the man to being yesterday's man? It's like you've grown up and now you've been replaced. How do you transition from being a father to now being a grandfather? How do you go from working to retiring? Maybe your role is changing. What God's practically calling you to is changing. Because God's got plans for you in this season. But they may, may not be the same plans he's got for you for the next season. God's asking me to lead this church at this moment. But I don't know if this is forever. God's called me to preach. But what happens if something happens in my life and I, I can't speak anymore? There's a, a preacher in America that's had this incredible disease where he's lost his voice. And it's like, if my identity is wrapped up in what I do, then that can be stripped away in a second. And we're all wondering, it's like, what am I called to do? It's like, actually, I don't care what you do day to day for God if you are growing up into Christ-likeness because then you will take that character into every area, into every relationship, into every aspect, and you will learn to be a husband that's Christ-like. You'll learn to be a father that's Christ-like and a mother that's Christ-like and a grandmother that's Christ-like. And we need to learn to grow together to try and figure out what that actually looks like and how we work it out. So Woody is struggling and Buzz comes in and he replaces him. But we understand like the, the final um, culmination of the movie is he realizes he's a toy. And not just any toy. He looks on like the sole of his foot and Andy's written there. And it's because he realizes he's Andy's toy. And it's like his role is to play and fulfill that role that Andy has for him. And then I was watching another thing, and it's, it's talking about this, this girl that's walking around barefoot. And she's, she's describing her soul. And it's like, man, it's amazing how much our feet get impacted by this, the environment that they're in. You, you, you protect your, your feet and you keep them like moisturized, like, come on, I'm sure you like, you know, so those pedicures and it's like, you've got these nice, soft, delicate feet. But then on the other side of you, you walk around like, like my kids, they never want to even wear shoes to school. They get a tougher soul. And our soul actually gets shaped by the environment that we're a part of. And it's fascinating that it just so happens that that same word is used for our soul. And our soul is impacted by the environment and the challenges that we're going through. And it's whatever environment we place ourselves in and how we actually handle it will affect us. And we either get hard or we get soft. Yeah. Either we nurture our soul and we can actually have that soft, sensitive, like supple soul. Or we can start getting hard. And in the Psalm 95... Verse 8, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Meribah is actually a word for quarreling. As you did at Massa. Massa is testing. If you don't know the story, that's straight after Israelites have been rescued from Egypt. They've seen the most powerful demonstrations that God has put on display in history. He's come in to reveal that this is who I am. 
I am, I am who I am, he says to, to Moses. And he's, I'm going to put my power on display. Literally, he's saying, like, I'm going to put my power on display compared to all of those Egyptian gods for a record for the rest of history to show you what I am like. I am the God that comes and sees and is concerned about you. And I'm going to put my power on display to set you free from the, the captivity of Egypt. And I'm going to rescue you. And you're not going to do anything to get yourself free other than trusting in the blood of the Lamb. So as, as the people trust in the blood of the Lamb and they get set free and now they're in the wilderness and very quickly they go to like, hey, well, now we don't have any food. My mom mentioned it last week. It's like, ah, can't we go back to the, the onions in like Egypt? It's like, no, but you were slaves there. And yet we act exactly the same as that. God sets us free and then straight away it's like, oh, but, but this is also not fixed. It's like, you may have done that for me last week, but what are you doing for me today? What have you done for me lately? Kind of thing. It's, we, we're very quick to put God to the test. C.S. Lewis actually wrote an incredible book about that called God in the Dock. So we, we love to try and say, like, actually, we're going to put God on the stand. And we're going to see if he stands up to my judgment. Because he, he claims to be good, but are you good in the way that I deem to be good? Have you done enough? Do you, do you measure up? The amazing thing is God actually says there is one place where you can put him to the test. That's with your finances. And it's, he actually says, test me on this. So it's like he flips it around. Where actually, can you place your trust in, can you go all in with me, with everything that you've got, with your dearest possessions, with your treasures, with, if you can place your treasures where I am, then you can test me and I'll show that I can show up for you. Wow, I'm getting very lost and going round and round. It's an amazing psalm because it starts off, Come let us worship. Come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. In the same psalm, it's talking about that we've been challenged at the rock where there was nothing. And at the rock, there was provision. At the rock, the water came out. At the rock was where we actually had this miraculous provision of water. And the chapter before, it talks about the manna that was provided on a daily basis. In the midst of a desert, God came and he gave the resources that they needed for that day. And I was surprised by that. It's like, actually... We look at it and say, God, if you haven't provided for my, like, my future and my retirement and everything now, you haven't provided for me completely. But I've given you enough for today. Because I want you to trust me today. And I want you to trust me tomorrow and the next day. And then on Saturdays, he says, like, actually, I'll give you like a double portion. So that actually you can trust me for the Sabbath. Because I'm the God who wants to give you rest. And then the psalm wraps up. It says, today, if you, hear my, if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts, but actually enter into rest. This then it ends. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That was just for that generation as a picture of the fact that we can actually enter into rest. There is a rest available for us. 
And the whole of our lives is actually, will you enter into that rest? Will you enter in to what God has for us? And that's the big question for us today. We're saying, can we surrender in the midst of a storm? Can we enter into that rest? And how do we enter into that rest? I don't know about you, but we hear talk about like, hey, you have to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And you have to go all in. And then it's like, oh man, I'm back to, this is a lot of hard work again. Okay, how do I work? How do I make this happen? Maybe, maybe I haven't been praying enough. Maybe I haven't been having like enough quiet time. Okay, now I've been doing this quiet time kind of thing and I've been praying. Now I need to ramp it up a little bit. I'm going to fast. And I'm going to add some extra things because that's going to twist God's arm and it's going to get me to where I want to go. I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to make sure I read my Bible, pray every day, and then I'm going to grow, grow, grow. And everything is going to be fine. And my kids are going to be fine. And this is going to guarantee that everything is going to go my way because I know what's right. Problem is, that's not how it works. God gives us ways and He wants us to know His ways. But first and foremost, He wants us to know Him. I'm going through Job at the moment and it is the most complicated book in the world to read. Because all through Job, there's, there's incredible things. You read it and it sounds so profound. And you realize it's one of the guys that is accusing Job that is proved to be wrong at the end. Because I read it and it's like it touches exactly where I am. And it's like, yes, that's right. When you do the right thing, God comes through for you. And clearly, Job, you're in the wrong. And then the Bible says, no, Job was not in the wrong. Because life is messy. And sometimes you do all of the right things and it still goes back rough. And those are the tests. Those are the challenges. I was tempted to preach from Warren's favorite verse, count it all joy when you go through tests and trials. Because we need to have that mindset where it's actually, you're going through trials doesn't mean you're off the path. Doesn't mean you've lost God. More importantly, it doesn't mean that God's lost you. He's actually, he's, he's removing his like, bit of protection, not for your harm, but for your good, to show you how strong you are. To show you how capable you are. To show you what he's placed inside of you. Think of Michelle going through challenges in the last little while. But actually, as she embraces it, and as she leans into being Christ-like and loving, even when it's completely undeserved, and loving and loving and loving, and then you see breakthrough coming in another week in a completely different way. There's something locked up in that. It's like, actually, if we submit to God's ways, we can strive and we can enter into rest that's available for us. The rest that's available doesn't mean life is going to be perfect. It just means we look at the soul and we see that God's name is written there. And He can do with us whatever He pleases. Sometimes He's going to move us on and our role is going to completely change. Sometimes what we've clung on to, it's like, hey, like Warren, I'm the guy who hosts a church. Maybe that changes like that. And it's a different role. But when he finds his identity in God, not in the role that he's playing, there's, 
is an identity that can't be like shaken because God is in control. And God can move him on and he can change our roles and he can change what's required of us as we learn to trust him and trust his ways. So come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. His hands are the depths, in his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. He's our shepherd. We are his. We get to come and we kneel before him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Phrase I had for today was, how do we enter into this rest? How do we listen to God? Is we need hard knees and a soft heart. If we have hard knees and a soft heart, because it talks about hardening our heart when we go through challenges. Because we harden our heart because it's like, I've done everything. I've done it all right. Even if I haven't done it all right, I did my best. God, you know. It's like, I tried. It's like, it's so quick. Like, yeah, I, man, I love your honesty of just saying, man, I, I, I just want to fix this situation. I know what's right. Because I feel exactly like that often look at people and I'm like, God, why don't they come to me? Because I have all the answers. And then I realize I sound like a stupid teenager. That's like, I've learned a little bit. And then I get so arrogant that it's like, God, I can fix everything. And I know how their life should go. And I know how their life should go. And then I remember the words of 1 Corinthians 8, where it's like knowledge puffs up. Whereas love builds up. And I say, God, actually, I need to be humbled. And I humble myself before you because I, I, I want everybody to grow up into the fullness of what God has for them. But I don't know what that looks like. Because for me to know exactly what your next step is, I need to know you how God knows you. And I need to be able to see what he is doing and what he's busy with and how he is shaping you and forming you. I had a conversation with Dean this week and he's like, so what does it look like? What does discipleship look like in the church? And I'm like, ah, so easy to go to a formula of like, you know what? I can teach you this, this Bible series and this course and this little thing. And I realized like actually discipleship has to be completely unique because it's like raising up your kids. You need to know your kids. You need to know what they need next. You need to know what they are called to. You need to understand their giftings. I need Because what works for my daughter doesn't work for my son. And that's just two kids. How much more with the incredible diversity that we've got here. Then the other side is discipleship not even in the Bible. The word. Because to be a disciple is you actually have to follow Jesus. The word disciple is somebody that actually apprentices themselves to somebody else. So it has to come from you. And not disciple to me, but disciple to Jesus. It's actually, we need a devotion to, to be raised up 
and to grow into Christ-likeness. Think of Paul's words in Galatians where it's like, my groaning is for you that you would grow up into the fullness of Christ. Julian, I want you to grow into the fullness of what Christ has for you. In social media these days, we've got like, who, who, who do you follow and how many followers do you have? And it's like, so much in that is it's actually discipleship. It's just a question of who are you following? Being a disciple is just saying, I follow Christ. And in every foot, every step, I'm going to try and be like him as much as what I possibly can. And the invitation is for you to be devoted to him and disciple to him. And one of the ways to do that is we devote ourselves to God's church, to his bride, to what he is doing here. Not because we've got the be all and end all in this church, but it's together we're saying, man, we're devoted to Christ. And we, we submit to his ways and we want to know him. In Hebrews, it's almost like a cheat code for Psalm 95. You read Hebrews 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that no one or none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have be believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in his words. And on the seventh day, God created rest from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in. Because of their disobedience. Therefore God again sets a certain day. Calling it today. When a long time later he spoke through David. As was said before. Today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest. God would not have spoken of a later day. There remains then a Sabbath. For the Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest. Also rests from his own work. Just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. No, that's quite long, but because we have a great high priest, we can actually enter into this rest. We are invited to enter into our rest. 
And that rest is actually learning to trust God. It's not learning to perform perfectly. It's not learning to actually lower our standards that it doesn't matter how I live. It's learning to trust God for our life. Therefore, living wholeheartedly because there's a rest to enter into. We so easily fall into one of the two. It's like, actually, no, Jesus has done everything, so it doesn't matter how I live. Or on the other side, it's like, no, but we have to do the right thing. And we have to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And they are doing the right thing. So I'm going to fix them. But actually, God wants to say, like, trust me. Jesus has done everything for us. Therefore, we get to live in light of that. Therefore, we live. I've been looking in this whole series, which is not really a series. Um, God's been challenging us. We've gone through the whole Sermon on the Mount and saying, this is who Jesus is. This is what his teaching were. And it's like, actually, if you listen to my words and put them in place, you will build a house that will withstand everything and will shine and declare God's glory. And how do we build a life like that? How do we build a life like that when we feel like a jellyfish half the time? But I, I think there's, there's the two extremes. Like one, it's like it sometimes feels like we're a jellyfish and we can't do anything. And then there's the other extreme where it's like we are so rigid because we know we've done everything right. And I've really tried hard. And it's that it's Luke 15, it's the two brothers. You've got the younger brother or the older brother. If you're prone to being a younger brother, you're prone to being a jellyfish because it's like, actually, I've got nothing to offer. But God wants to say, you do. And then there's an the older brother that it's like, I've done everything right, God. I have served you. I have tried. I am better than at least 80% of people, as like I graded on like a, a, a curve because I've tried really hard and I've done it all right and I've done my best. And you take that into your relationships and you break everything. It doesn't matter if you've done a lot good. It's like if you go into a relationship and you say, you know what, I've done it right. The, the, the only thing that has saved me in my life was actually the times where I went off the rails and God grabbed hold of me. Because, because of that, I understand the grace of God. And because I know that I don't deserve to be where I am now. It's like you, accusations come against me. It's like, look at what you've done. It's like, you don't know the half of it. I've done stuff way worse than that. I know my heart. And yet God has grabbed hold of me. And I know that he has transformed me. Because of that, my identity is built on the grace of God. So anytime there's a challenge, every time there's a correction, every time even a flaw or mistake is pointed out in my life, I'm not saying it's all perfect, but I can learn from it. Because God has placed me in the safe environment where it doesn't matter what he says, doesn't matter what correction comes, it's actually I'm safe in God's love. And then, as I was meditating on this this morning, there was another song that played. And it says, Love, it will not betray you, dismay you, or enslave you. It will set you free. Allow you to be more like the man you were made to be. There is a design, an alignment, a cry of my heart to see. The beauty of love as it was made to be. There's a cry in each one of our hearts 
to see that love as it was made to be, to see who God actually made us to be. I want to read this one last thing. I have to quote C.S. Lewis. It's like kind of a requirement. He's talking about humility and trying to understand what it actually means to live with humility. He's like, apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what it is, what is in fact the humblest, most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before its teacher, a creature before its creator. I am not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions, or how very quickly, in my own experience, the lawful pleasures of praise from those whom it is my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment, before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having, been, having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, before all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity there. She will be free from miserable illusion that it is her doing, with no trait, uh, no taint of what should now call self-approval. She will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be, and the moment which heals her old inferiority complex forever will drown her pride. It's talking about the beauty of a child coming before its father and desiring to actually be pleasing to its father. Or it's like a, it talks about like an inferior, a dog coming to its master, wanting to be loved. And it's saying like, actually, is there, there's an inferiority like there. It's actually, but there's a beauty in when we realize our position before God. Because there's a deep desire inside of us to measure up, to be found worthy. And the truth of that is we, we, we try and break free from that bondage of trying to please God, and we try and prove that I am worthy. And that becomes our pride in this world. And it's look at what I've done. Look at what I've achieved. I'm a self-made man. I've done all the right things. I've, I've achieved. I'm greater than this. I'm greater than that. I've done better than my brothers. I've done better than this. Actually, that desire is actually to please God. Because there's a longing deep down inside of us to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. That's where that ambition, that longing, that striving to live a life worthy takes its full pleasure when we actually realize that actually we look on the sole of our foot and we see that God's name is written there. Because that's who we call to please. And we don't test God in like, it's like actually you haven't measured up. God is the one who's looking and basically testing us. or saying, just will you trust me? Will you trust me? And I think the way that we, we show that we trust him is by having hard knees and soft heart. When we go through the testing, when we go through the trials, not actually getting hard towards God, but actually saying, God, I trust you. 
and I'm going to pray my way through this. And I'm going to respond by what you have asked us to do.